Good morning, church. Merry Christmas to everyone. We're going to jump right into a familiar passage of Scripture this morning here, Matthew chapter 2. And this passage actually serves as the very basis for what many of us are about to do in the coming week. And some of you may have already started this, this act of gift giving that we participate in uh, during the holiday season finds its basis in what we're going to look at here uh, this morning. And so uh, I've entitled today's message, Three Truth-Telling Treasures, as we're going to look at the gifts that these wise men brought uh, to Jesus. And, and we're going to look at the significance of these and what they may teach us about who this Christ really is. And so our key truth today is this, that these three gifts of the Magi, they reveal to us three magnificent truths. And I want to show you some things from these three gifts this morning that help us to understand who this king is. Before we jump into the text this morning, I want to clear up some, some misconceptions regarding this text. There are several things uh, that we oftentimes practice or, or believe about that first Christmas that actually aren't in the Bible. We actually learned it uh, from a song that we sing. It's called We Three Kings, and we purposefully did not sing that song this morning because it actually leads us astray from what the Bible actually says. And so let me clear up some misconceptions this morning before uh, we look at the treasures today. First of all, we need to know this. The Magi were not in the manger scene. So I had to fix our nativity scenes this week. Uh, you may have noticed the wise men have been removed. Uh, they are off in the distance where they should be. So uh, I know this blew the mind of one of our ladies Wednesday night when I mentioned this. That, uh, that, but the Magi were actually not there on the night that Jesus was born. As we're going to see, it says in verse 11. Verse 11 will clear up a lot of misconceptions, by the way. That they, that they came to him and visited him when he was in the house. He was no longer in the stable. Perhaps as much as two years had, had passed by the time these wise men arrived. Also, the Bible never says there were three of them. They're often depicted in threes because there were three gifts that they brought. But there, there were likely many more of them. They would have traveled in a, in a fairly large caravan. The fact that uh, the Scripture says that all of Jerusalem was troubled probably indicates that more than three guys showed up. This was probably a large caravan of folks that came uh, bringing these gifts. Uh, the Bible just says there were three gifts, not three uh, men. And we often hear them called kings. But this term magi, this is really important for us to understand, that this term magi was not relating to a king. These were actually servants of kings. These were men who would have engaged in what we would call astrology. They, they studied the stars to watch for patterns and, and signs in the heavens that they then sought to interpret in order to bring their king uh, some kind of proof or some kind of guidance or some kind of wisdom by which he would then make decisions. And so they had, as they had studied the stars, they had noticed there was a new star in the sky. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. They had noticed there was a new star in the sky, which in their understanding meant that a very significant person had just been born. And so they then set out to go and find this very significant person, as we'll see. But they were not kings. They were more astrologers, counselors to a king who played a very important political and religious role in their own country. Now, 
don't misunderstand, the Bible here is not endorsing astrology. If you like to read what it said about your sign in the paper, that's on you. We're not going to get into that this morning. The Bible is not encouraging us to look for signs in the heavens. This is God using, meeting these men where they were, using what knowledge they thought that they had. God is using that to lead them toward real truth. And as we pray, he will do for us this morning. John Piper said something about this passage that I think is helpful to us in setting our minds toward what God would have us to see. He said here in this passage, we see God wielding the universe to make his son known and worshipped. That's really the key of what's happening here. Really, Matthew's emphasis is not on the wise men. It's not on this star. It's not on their journey or even necessarily on the gifts that they brought. Matthew's continual emphasis is the child. And that should be our emphasis as well. These treasures portray who he is. Let's talk about them for a few moments this morning. First of all, we see their first gift was the gift of gold. The gift of gold demonstrates that this is the king of kings. Everyone in the ancient world knew that if you were going to come before a king, that you needed to bring a gift. That was just common practice. If you were going to come and stand before the king, you needed to bring with you a gift. And the best gift that you could bring, if you could afford it, was a gift of gold. This was the medal of royalty. This was a gift fit for a king. So when these magi come bearing the gift of gold to this baby, they come bringing the gift of a king. And so we see him here, the king of kings, but there's another king in this passage, isn't there? He's referenced there from the very beginning. For it was in the days of Herod the king that Jesus was born. Now, Herod was a very tyrannical ruler. He had been put in place by the Roman government to oversee that region of Judea there around Jerusalem. He was a half-Jew and half-Edomite, and it's a reminder of the fact that years ago there had been this enmity between Jacob and Esau. You remember that in the Old Testament? And so the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, the Jews were the descendants of Jacob, and they had constantly been at war with one another. And now sitting on the throne in Jerusalem was this one known as Herod, who was half Jew and half Edomite, and yet he proclaimed himself to be the king of the Jews. So needless to say, Herod was troubled when these wise men showing up, show up and say, we've come to visit the one who has been born king of the Jews. Herod's thinking, I thought that was my title. Who is this usurper? What's going on here? He was deeply troubled. In fact, the word could better be translated there in verse 3 that Herod was intimidated. He was fearful of him this speaks even sometimes this word is translated as a a terror he was terrorized by the thought that this baby might take his crown 
Herod was a man whose life was intent upon power, so much so that he would destroy anyone who sought to remove his authority. He was known for killing at least one of his wives. There's suspect, there, there is a, a suspicion that he killed more than one. He had nine different wives through the course of his life. And he also killed at least one of his own children whom he suspected of plotting against him. He was constantly taking out his own family members if he thought they might pose a problem in regard to his power. But here this baby that, was been, that has been born that no one took notice of very much on the night of his birth, just a handful of shepherds showed up to greet him. Now he is the one who is intimidating the ruler of the land. But it didn't stop with intimidation. As Matt will show us in next week's sermon, his intimidation would later turn into an extermination. Matt's going to look at those scriptures next Sunday with us, but we're going to see here how the fear of Herod turned into him actively fighting against this newborn king and seeking to wipe him out, being used as a very tool of the devil himself to seek to stop the mission of Christ. We see two kings here. A worldly king intent upon power and self-promotion who was seeking to make his name great. Herod was known for all kinds of wonderful uh, public works. He created many uh, wonderful, beautiful things for people to see. He updated the look of the, the temple and the, the people praised him for all the wonderful works that, that he had done to beautify the land, but he did it all to make a name for himself. And then we see this king who was born in a cattle stall, not in a palace, who was laid in a feeding trough, not in a nice crib, who was clothed in rags, not in a cute onesie. We see this king, and he's not like any other king. He's not doing the things that kings do. He grows up the son of a carpenter. When he embarks upon his public ministry, as we'll see a few weeks from now in Matthew chapter 3, when he embarks on his public ministry, it doesn't look like anyone would have thought. He's basically living as a homeless person. He gathers about him a core group of 12 nobodies. Yes, there's magnificent teaching and wonderful miracles that take place, and yet all within about a 30-square-mile area. He was largely unknown. And he died the death of a criminal, though he had done nothing wrong. And yet in all this, he showed us what a real king looks like. And so let us then consider the weight of his crown. What kind of king is this? As we come to Christmas time, where Christ should be at the center of our celebrations, as we are seeking to do what the wise men came to do in worshiping our king, as we consider him this morning, we need to take a moment 
to look forward to what it's going to be like when our king returns. Again, we're here in this Advent season when we are looking back to his first coming and we are anticipating his second coming. We're living between the times. We're living between the times of Jesus' first coming and his second. And what will his second look like? The Apostle John gives us a preview of coming attractions. Revelation chapter 19 John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. By the way, that's what a king does. A king sits upon a white horse and judges and makes war upon his enemies. When Jesus returns, it will no longer be a baby in a manger He will be a king on a throne, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Church, let's be reminded this morning that Jesus does not assume that title in Revelation 19 at some future date. That he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords before time began. Now, yes, there will be a realization of all of the world that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are yet awaiting that full revelation, but what has been imparted to us is that this is the King. He is worthy of our worship. How will we worship him? And so we see gold, the gift fit for a king. And then the gifts begin to get a little stranger. The next gift, the gift of frankincense, the gift of incense, reminds us that this is our great high priest. The primary use of incense in that day was in temple worship. Whether it be the temple there in Jerusalem to the one true and living God or to false gods as they would have their temples as well, they would often use incense in their worship. They would burn the incense and as those fragrant fumes were lifted up, there was a, there was a picture of the prayers of the people going up to the God that they were worshiping. And this was common practice in worship in those days. And so when these wise men come bearing frankincense come bearing incense a a a a substance used in worship they're reminding us this king is worthy of our worship but also he's our great high priest he is the intercessor between us and god he is standing in the gap to to erase the differentiation that the distance that has occurred between us and god because of our sins he is the one mediator between god and man but notice the response of the priests here it says in verse 5 that herod assembled the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, inquiring of them where the Christ was to be born. And they quoted here from the prophecy of Micah, found in Micah 5, verse 2. 
And he told them, they told him, he's to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. Again, this is Micah 5, 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then here's what you would expect. They have been waiting for the fulfillment of prophecies like these, and there are dozens of them scattered across the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that promised the one who would come and crush the head of that old serpent that led men and women into sin in the first place. From Genesis 3.15 on, there's dozens of these prophecies pointing forward to this one called the Messiah, the the Christ, the anointed one, the, the promised one. They have been looking forward to his coming for generations. And so you would think that the religious leaders who have been teaching about this coming Messiah all of their lives, many of these men would have memorized the entire Old Testament. They knew their Bible better than any of us in this room. You would think that their response would be one of excitement and let's go see this thing that God has done. The fulfillment of prophecy. Could this be the one we've been talking about coming all of our lives? And yet what we see is the Jewish priests were largely at this point just indifferent toward him. They won't even make the five-mile journey from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem to see what the wise men were talking about. I mean, consider that for a moment. If there were some great dignitary, let's, let's imagine the, the President of the United States or, or, or some famous star was going to be coming to Hardensburg today, and it's someone that you had always wanted to meet, and I wanted to say to you, that person is going to be in Hardensburg today. Do you want to go and see them? And you were just indifferent? Ah, eh, no big deal. I'll pass on it. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's ridiculous that there would be an indifference toward one they had proclaimed to be waiting for all of their lives. Generation after generation, they had been telling their kids about the Messiah that was going to come and rescue God's people and be their long-awaited king, the one to fulfill the Davidic promises And yet when he came, they were indifferent. The danger is, we can be so close to the things of God and yet indifferent ourselves. We can be so familiar with the word of God and yet remain unaffected, unchanged. There have been men and women who have committed themselves their entire lives to studying the Word of God, and yet they have never met the God of the Word. It's a danger for all of us that we would be so close to the kingdom of God and yet to miss it. Perhaps because of our indifference. 
But you see, it wouldn't remain indifferent. We will see these chief priests and scribes. They will come into the scene, the Gospel of Matthew, a number of times. And their response to Jesus goes from bad to worse. Because you see, their indifference later turned to indignation. Matthew 21, as Jesus is heading toward the cross, the chief priests and the scribes become key players in him being crucified. In fact, if it were not for their role, Jesus likely would not have been sent to the cross. They're the ones who were stirring up the crowds against him. So their indifference turned into indignation, and then later it became just outright wrath when they cried out, crucify him. Some of the same men who would not travel five miles to witness his birth were actively stirring up the crowds to cry out for his death. What this says to us is this. Our indifference toward King Jesus will not remain indifference. Our apathy will eventually turn toward an antipathy and we will be antagonistic toward him just be aware our indifference our apathy towards our king is a dangerous place to be when our hearts begin to grow cold toward him we need to have an awareness of that church I wonder how many in our American churches today would travel five miles to go and see him, or would it be just too much of an imposition? We need to consider this morning the worth of our creed. We profess to believe these things. The chief priests and the scribes devoted their entire lives to teaching the word of God. And yet when the word made flesh was just five miles away, they would not travel to see him. What is the worth of our profession of faith? Does it change the way we actually live? It's not just about what we profess to believe or a creedal statement that we might recite. It's about how has this king radically transformed my actual life, what I do with my money and with my time and how my words are used to impact others for the kingdom of God. What is the influence, the impact of the king? Hebrews 4 encourages us, since since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, our confession of faith that Jesus is Lord. And by the way, holding fast to the confession doesn't mean keeping it close to the vest. We hold fast to our confession by sharing it with others. This is the way we guard the gospel. We guard the gospel by proclaiming the gospel, by sharing the gospel. This is not a privatized faith that we have, folks. It cannot be. We must be, as our Savior, constantly proclaiming the kingdom of God. The King has come and He is coming again. 
So we see gold, a gift fit for a king. They brought incense, that used by a priest. And finally, the strangest of the gifts, one that could have even been considered offensive in the moment. They brought the gift of myrrh, a reminder that this is not only the king of kings, this is also the suffering servant. Myrrh appears a couple more times in Matthew's gospel. The next time we will see a mention of myrrh is at the cross. When they offered him a drink that was mixed with myrrh, myrrh was a painkiller that was often used in those days a, a medicinal for medicinal purposes. And it says in Mark's gospel that when they offered him the drink mixed with myrrh, that Jesus refused it. He did not receive the painkiller because he was willing and wanting to receive all the weight of our sin. That nothing would dull his senses as he made that ultimate sacrifice for us. So he rejected the myrrh, and then as he was buried, it says that he was buried with a mixture of spices. Myrrh would have been among them. This is what they would use to embalm bodies in those days. To, to, they would take these spices, and they would, they would anoint the body for burial. And that's what would have been used as Jesus was buried only three days later to rise from the dead. Myrrh, a reminder of the suffering servant. A reminder of why the king came in the first place. He came not to rule in some earthly castle on some man-made throne. He came to suffer in our place that we might be redeemed and brought into his eternal kingdom forever. You see, these magi, they were inspired by him. They saw the star, which I believe was a supernatural manifestation that God put in the heavens to draw them through their own understanding of things to come and to worship this king who was born not in Jerusalem in the king's palace, but in Bethlehem in the manger stall. God put this supernatural manifestation, this star in the heavens to draw these magi. They were inspired to make the trip of what would have been at least many months, if not a couple of years that they traveled in order to come and to visit this king. They were inspired by him. But understand, understand this morning, church, let's be reminded today that us being inspired by Jesus is not enough. It is not enough for us to look at his godly life and be inspired to live in like manner. It is not enough for us to be inspired by his sacrificial death and say, what a beautiful example of self-sacrifice. I'll seek to do similar things. If we are only inspired by Jesus, we are missing the point. We need something much more than just inspiration, something uh, to put a warm, fuzzy feeling in the pit of our stomachs. Our inspiration has to turn to something greater as it did for them. Look at what it says there. When they saw the star, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. Notice who comes first, by the way. 
For those who would seek to exalt Mary in this picture, notice who is mentioned first every time in this scene. It's all about the child. He's the center of attention, and rightly so. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then they presented these three treasures. They fell on their faces and worshipped him. You see, their inspiration was turned into adoration. The heartfelt, self-sacrificing, face-to-the-floor worship. This is the similar response we see throughout the scriptures when an angel of the Lord shows up. Men and women plant their faces in the dirt because that's the only rightful posture when God manifests himself. Adoration. Intensity of worship. The presenting to him of these costly gifts and yet ultimately all of it ought to point us in one singular direction see we can't stop at the baby in the manger or at this point in the house we can't stop there we have to tell the rest of the story and in order to understand why these men are faces in the dirt These men who would have been politically privileged would have been considered important guys in their region who would have made a name for themselves and been looked to by kings for good counsel. Why are they now face in the dirt in the the front of this little boy bearing these costly treasures in what was most likely just a rental house in which they were staying? I think part of the secret is found in that final gift of myrrh. Again, it's almost offensive. Who brings an embalming solution to a baby shower? We had a baby shower here just last week for Grant and Emily, just in time, by the way. I mean, they're just cu- they like to cut it close, I'm telling you. Just days before the baby's born, we're having a baby shower. I mean, think what it would have been like if somebody had showed up at the baby shower with perhaps a little casket or some embalming fluid. Who would have thought, how sick? Who does this? Is this some kind of cruel joke? Perhaps Mary and Joseph might have thought a similar thing. That's an odd gift to give to a baby. And yet I think in the providence of Almighty God and in His sovereign control over all things, He wanted to point everyone in the room to what this baby had come to do. This baby had come to die. And so myrrh stands as a reminder that we need to consider the word of His cross. We cannot come to Christmas without also looking ahead to the cross. 
We can so romanticize this time of year and all the lights and the pretty decorations that we can easily forget what it's all for. Let us not just romanticize it and be inspired by the feeling of the season. Let us be reminded that without Easter, Christmas bears no meaning. Because God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And how would the world be saved through Him? It was through His cross. And the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, this is the power of God on display. And so for those who are looking at those wise men face in the dirt with their expensive gifts before this humble little boy and his parents who said, how ridiculous, how much more ridiculous was it for them when they saw that same baby some 30 years later, arms spread wide on a cross with a placard over his head that read, King of the Jews. And they were hurling insults at him. And they were mocking him. And they were saying, how ridiculous. If you're really a king, why don't you call all of your angels to come and take you down from that cross? And yet they did not realize that it was his cross that was paving the way for their own salvation. It was only some Roman centurion who looked upon him and said, surely this must be the Son of God. Let us consider the word of his cross even spoken before the New Testament days. Isaiah 53, we'll close with this. 700 years before Jesus' birth, Isaiah prophesied, Surely, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Do you know the king? And what will you come bearing before him in your worship of this king? Will we remain apathetic and indifferent? Or will we recognize His immense and unparalleled worth? And come and plant our faces in the dirt as well. In the hopes that one day this King will say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. We will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because of anything that we have done. We will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, only because 
we have been trusting in what our king did for us. With that thought, let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for these three gifts. Gold, a gift fit for a king, reminding us that Jesus is the king above all kings, above all earthly rulers. You have established every authority, and ultimately all of them are a reminder that there is no authority but yours and yours alone. And this Jesus, our great high priest, who stands in the gap between us and you, our mediator, who made not the sacrifice of an animal, but the sacrifice of his own flesh, that we might be redeemed and forgiven and brought back into a right relationship with you through faith in Christ's finished work. This gift of myrrh reminding us that not only is he the king of kings, but also the suffering servant, a baby born to die for the sins of the world. To resolve the curse that came because of mankind's sin against you all the way back in Genesis 3. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father, I pray that we would not approach Him in indifference. That we would not approach Him in apathy. That You would stir our hearts today. That we might be reminded of the immense and unparalleled joy of our salvation. And that we too might bow the knee before King Jesus with joy in our hearts because He has done great things. May we come and adore the King this morning. And may our hearts be renewed in rightful worship. In Jesus' name.